Hello, everybody. Welcome to the IBM Developer Podcast. We are your hosts. My name is Justin Horsall, and we have the very intelligent Luke Schantz on the podcast as well. Hello. Welcome. Thank you for listening. Thank you for the compliment, Justin. I My pleasure. I'll take it. You should. Yeah. We are going to get into a bit of the history of Kubernetes with somebody that you interviewed, Luke. Who was it? Can you tell us a little bit about this special individual? I certainly can. I had the opportunity to sit down with Brad Topol. He is IBM Distinguished Engineer. Oh, is that the same Brad who is the uh, former member of the OpenStack Foundation? It is the very same. And we're actually going to talk a little bit about OpenStack in our conversation with Brad. We're going to talk about Kubernetes. What's happened over the last three years to get us where we are today? Five years ago, OpenStack was eating the world. It's interesting that ancient history for Kubernetes is recent history for humanity. If we're, wow, that's a weird thing to say. True though. It is kind of true. <laughs> so true. the first KubeCon was only in 2016 and no one knew really then which way this was going to go. Mm-hmm. But it looks like, I think we all know now that Kubernetes has taken the lead. We're going to dig into those reasons. I like it. And I'm not sure if we already said that, but Brad is also the Kubernetes technology CTO at IBM, which is kind of cool. So he calls the shots, but does he still code Luke? He does still code. He is in the thick of it when it comes to developing. That's cool. Well, that's what we'd like to see. Yeah, apparently there's a new breed of distinguished engineer out there, and they don't just rest on their laurels. They still compete. It's almost like Alexander the Great or the Spartans. It's like, no, you can't just, you can't lead from behind. You've got to be out there. Exactly. Yeah. Pushing the code. Pushing the code. Pushing the future forward. Winter, we love it. Winter is coming. <laughs> Let's get into it. Let's get into it. Let's get into it. This is Luke Schantz with IBM Developer Podcast. I'm at KubeCon 2019 in Barcelona. I'm speaking with Brad Topol. Hello, Brad. Hey, how we doing? Let me ask you, what got you started down this path of technology, this career you have? What started your your path in, in technology? So probably what started my path in technology was when I was a kid, my dad had a small software company. He programmed himself. He had a few folks working for him. This was way back, and people did all kinds of different things when they were a contract programmer for different companies. I watched him work on video games for the Atari 800. There was one called Tree Surgeon. There's actually a YouTube video, so I made a YouTube video of it. And so my dad was working on that in the house. I think it was M68000 Assembler. And that's how we got our first computers, because he had a contract to build that video game. And then as I got older, I watched him work on some other stuff. He actually teamed up with a physicist named Dr. I think Rodney Bent, and he worked on the first system ever to do tracking where lightning hit. So he did the software part, the physicist did all the physics of it. And so it was really cool to work on a system like that, where lightning is striking all over the maps. We didn't have that way back when. And then as I got older, I started working for him doing database programming and being able, if he was on a business trip and a customer needed a database report created, I actually do it. He likes to laugh and say, I didn't work really hard. I came in for just a couple hours, made him take me to lunch and buy me lunch. According to him, I worked like four hours a day. And I think he's probably correct. But that's what got me down my path, being around early software development, different types of projects, getting to code a little learning basic on the Atari 800, and then obviously going off to school and picking that as my major. 
Wow, that's that's really uh, what an excellent opportunity to be able to see that and start to learn from such a young age. Fascinating. Yeah, and because that's when things were simpler, right? You, you could be a jack of all trades as as a programmer. You you could do database one day, you could do lightning system another day, you could build a video game. These days, things get more and more complex, and so it, you end up being a little more specialized. You mentioned complexity, and I think that actually parlays very well into where we are and what we're doing here with Kubernetes, right? Let me ask you, what is Kubernetes and what problems does it solve? Why has it become such a phenomenon? Kubernetes has become an outstanding phenomenon. It's just had extending growth. And looking at it, I've been in this space for a while. I've been in the cloud infrastructure space since 2011, 2012. What really helped Kubernetes is even in the early versions, it got a lot of things right. So a lot of key features were in Kubernetes just right from the beginning that were going to make life easy. So if we go in the Wayback Machine to 2012, what was the state of the world? It was pretty good in cloud computing. We had the notion of virtual machines, and you could pick off a whole bunch of virtual machines, and that's how you could do cloud computing, and life was pretty good. While we were all doing that and excited about that, somebody came around, and this was, I think, 2013 at PyCon, Solomon Hikes came around and said, Hey, all you folks who think life is wonderful doing everything with virtual machines. Um, well, let me show you what I can do now these days with what I'm going to call containers. I'm going to take a little process. I'm starting provisioning websites as well and, and applications. What I'm going to do is instead of a whole huge virtual machine, I can really take my thing and make it a container because Linux has all this new support in it for isolation. In Linux now, I can give myself my own little file space. I can give myself my own little networking piece, my own little namespace. And now I can pretty much isolate and run and start up my little web application or, or web server rather and do it as essentially a process. And when you're seeing somebody come with that new model and most of us are now used to a virtual machine. Virtual machines are big. They take a long time to start up. They take a long time to snapshot. And here comes someone saying, I can do all of this with a process model and processes start up lightning quick and snapshotting. They built in this notion of a layered file system. So when you needed to snapshot and save your work, it was just doing a layered diff on top of whatever small changes you had. So the snapshotting was incredibly fast compared to virtual machines. And since these things that he called containers were much smaller, you could put a lot more on a either a virtual machine or a real server. So all of us working in virtual machines and used to how long things would take, the, the just the light bulb went off. Wow, this is great. And then what happened? So that, that change to containers from virtual machines and the potential there was really interesting. But then we had to prove, well, wait a minute, does this work for enterprise computing? I led some early uh, prototype efforts that said, well, can we run some of our key middleware in containers? Can we run WebSphere, like a WebSphere Liberty? Can we run a DB2? And at first, you know, there were a few bumps in the road. Uh, sometimes we needed a Linux kernel patch to make DB2 work. Sometimes we needed a minor tweak. But it wasn't too long that we were able to demonstrate key IBM middleware running as containers. So that was a huge step. Now we needed a way to orchestrate and provision these containers. And there were a couple different choices at the time. There was Docker Swarm. There was from Google Kubernetes. And uh, there was like some stuff from Mesosphere called Mesos. And we were wondering, well, what's really going to win? And turned out 
I remember having a conversation with Jason McGee, IBM VP and fellow, right guy. So I figured, let me ask him, hey, Jason, we got all these choices. Which one's going to win? And Jason looked at me and he said, oh, it's Kubernetes. That's the one we're betting on early at IBM. We're getting in early and betting on that. And I said, wait, why? Uh, people are telling me the swarm stuff's easier to use. And he looked at me and said, Brad, Kubernetes got the networking right. And that's the hardest part. And since they got the networking right and some other features right, that's what we're going to go with for orchestrating our containers. And IBM Cloud was one of the very first folks to jump in. And we could talk about a few of the things that Kubernetes really did right, right off the bat. It had a declarative model. So this was a huge advantage over the previous stuff that I had worked on where you would provision stuff and you would use something like Chef or Puppet or Ansible. In Kubernetes, you just simply write things as a declarative YAML. You say, hey, this is what I want. And then the Kubernetes system takes that and reads that YAML specification and creates what you want. I used to always use in my presentations, I'd say, do you know what it's like to work for a VP? And I said, when you work for a VP, the VP says, here's what I need to happen. You go make it happen. And they give you no details. And so as I like to tell folks, when you're using Kubernetes, you get to be the VP because you're creating the YAML specification and you're telling Kubernetes, go make this happen for me. And then the key features that we saw in Kubernetes to make this happen, right out of the box, it had auto-scaling. Right out of the box, it had failure resilience. You could say, I want eight replicas of my application. And you tell it, I want eight. And guess what happens if two go down? Kubernetes recognizes that two of your pods, your applications go down and it starts two more up because if you say you want eight, it's going to bring you back to eight. So the fact that Kubernetes got the networking right, the fact that they got the built-in failure resilience, the built-in auto-scaling out of the box, a lot of the things I had worked on in the past promised some of these things, but never delivered it out of the box. They were always sort of extra extensions that, oh, we think we're going to get right, but never did. So right out of the box, it was great. People were a little hesitant to use it because it was single vendor, but a lot of folks with a lot of encouragement from companies like IBM started a foundation. And once you start a foundation, it was a cloud native computing foundation. Now there's a level playing field. Now anybody can come contribute because if you're going to have an open source project and you want it to be successful, certain things have to be there. Sure, the code needs to be pretty good, although that can always be improved, but the community and the culture have to be right. Anybody should be able to come into the community, be a contributor, make contributions, and then become an influencer into the direction of the project. And that's only possible if you have good open governance and you have a, a foundation behind the project. And so what Google did is they donated Kubernetes as the first seed project to the Cloud Native Computing Foundation. And the rest is history. People started piling on, started using it. They got to see all the benefits of how easy it was. Great success stories in the press of, well, I, things were running, something bad happened on part of the things, on part of the system. A few of them went down, Kubernetes started them back up, and I didn't get called in the middle night on a pager saying everything was down. So hearing lots of those stories, people embracing the container model, which was uh, had all these wonderful advantages over the virtual machine model getting a foundation of place. We saw early on, even when I went to the first KubeCon, I went to Seattle 2016. We saw how just 
amazing this was going to be. And this was like, I got to start working on this stuff. This was cool. And that's, you know, when I started working on Kubernetes, it's been exceeding my expectations, just the huge growth, the wonderful community and how friendly everybody is and how helpful we all are to making progress in the community. And seeing the success of Kubernetes compared to other previous cloud infrastructures, Kubernetes really did show that it could run on public clouds and private clouds. Some would only run on private clouds and they really couldn't make any traction on the public clouds. Kubernetes runs on the IBM public cloud, runs on the Google public cloud, runs on Azure, runs on Amazon. It truly is ubiquitous both on the public cloud side and on the private cloud side. I got involved in some early work on conformance, have test suite so that we made sure Kubernetes was interoperable. Um, that was huge. So we really want you to feel like if for any reason you're on one vendor's platform of Kubernetes and for some reason they don't make you happy, very easy to move to any of the other ones that are there. We call that no vendor lock-in. And with that conformance program, just huge success with the strategies we use there. And say over 70 vendor distributions are now certified through the conformance program. And just, again, another reason for huge success. That's really fascinating. It seems like Kubernetes plays well on public clouds, private clouds. Clients like it because of the no vendor lock, convenience, high uptimes. But it's also really popular with developers, right? The idea of containerization. How does this compare to, say, maybe the first wave of open source from, say, like Linux? Well, it checks a lot of boxes. One, if you look at the infrastructure, it scales incredibly well. So built into its control plane that at the heart and guts of Kubernetes is this distributed key value data store called etcd. And that control plane, thank goodness, scales incredibly well. So if your control plane doesn't scale incredibly well, you can't build huge clusters. So one reason we're going to like Kubernetes is it scales really well. The other reason we really like it is the declarative model. So the declarative model actually enables some really cool features from a developer and DevOps perspective. Again, if you think before a couple of years back, what happened if you wanted to try and automate something? You wrote a Ansible script or a Chef script or a Puppet script. So if you really want to know what it's doing, and I say, hey, what's this doing? You know what you have to do? You got to go read the script. In contrast, Kubernetes has more of that declarative model. So you have a, a declarative model of these YAML descriptions that say, no, here's what's going to happen. I'm going to create you eight nodes in your cluster. And here's what your networking is going to look like. And here's what your security policy is going to look like. So right off the bat, it's sort of self-describing in what it's going to do in the YAML description. Now, if you take that and combine it with the fact that Docker you can use Docker files to generate container images. If you take the one-two punch of Docker files being able to generate your container images and these YAML descriptions that declare what you want to provision in Kubernetes, you can take all of that and store it in your source code repository. So now as a developer, it's very clear what you're doing, what you're going to create, and what's going to be deployed. Now, why that's so important is because we always would have the problem of your test system, your local system, your laptop isn't exactly like what's on production. So you'd have that problem, well, this famous phrase, worked on my laptop. Well, yeah, it worked on your laptop, but it turns out there were some quote-unquote slight differences in production. But when you have the approach of containers, which allows you to say, 
grab everything you need as an application and keep it all compartmentalized together. That's what containers do. They allow you to do. Now you have that. And then you have your YAML descriptions of what you want to provision. Your local test environment becomes pretty much very, very close to what you're going to do in production. You can make them very, very close. And now there's much less delta between your local and production. And you have less headaches of the, well, it worked on my laptop. I can pretty much take everything I need with me. And also, since I put everything in source code control, I can start doing DevOps because I can make it part of my build process. Make a minor change. It's stored in your Git repository. So there's a history of the change. You generate your new container images. You deploy. And now you can start doing cool stuff because you can really iterate fast. And that's what, if you're going to a cloud, one of the key things we talk about is being able to get small changes out quickly. A lot of good examples of companies who are are running the cloud and they need to get changes out real quickly. Very, very quickly. Fascinating. So Kubernetes is your current focus, but you're not new to open source. You've been working in open source a long time. What are some prior projects you've worked on? Really funny story. I was at, I've been at IBM 21 years and it was around, I believe, 2011. I was working on a job that was mostly internal. It was working across the whole software group, trying to get everybody to embrace improvements and serviceability to the products. And it was time for a new job that had run its course. And the opportunity came to work on something called OpenStack. At my level, I'm a distinguished engineer. I'm a technical executive. So I'm a hands-on engineer, but also have executive level responsibilities. And again, this was like 2011. They were looking for someone who was a distinguished engineer, but also willing to be hands-on. Way back when, that's many years ago, a lot of your distinguished engineers were more of the, I do more architecture, I have teams that work for me that do more of the coding, I present to the customer, what have you, not necessarily hands-on. The job opportunity that presented itself was, no, we need a DE who could be hands-on. We need them to go work in the community. They can't do this from the side. So they need to be hands-on, actually be a contributor. And that's what was really very exciting about the job. And I was willing to take it. I'd only made DE three years before that. So I hadn't lost all my programming skills. And, you know, as I told you before, I've been programming since I was like 12 or 13. So there's something very comfortable to me. And that's where I got started. They gave me a few folks and said, you and these folks know nothing about OpenStack, nothing about their development methodology, nothing about the way of doing reviews and testing. You need to go figure it out. And I had a team of a few folks that were probably pretty scared. They were just switched out of jobs, now going to have to learn Git, now going to have to learn Jenkins, now going to have to learn Python. Oh, we had to learn Internet Relay Chat, IRC. We had never used it before. And so I looked at the team and I said, here's the deal. If a dumb old DE can learn how to do this, you can too. I'm going first. And I jumped into a project on OpenStack called Keystone. It was for identity and access management. Learned how to do all the tools. Learned how to do meetings on something called Internet Relay Chat, which is sort of a predecessor to Slack. I convinced these folks we're all going to jump in together. And so I learned first how to do all this and meet people and learn the new tools and languages and the processes and the how to contribute and do enhancements. And the other folks learned with me. And then I started with three folks. That went so well. The organization I was working for kept giving me people. I ended up having like 20 people working on OpenStack. And so that was a great ride. Again, I made contributions to OpenStack, helped do a lot of the direction for it. And then I could always jump back and be a DE and do the executive stuff and talk to analysts and talk to customers as needed. So I I was very good at playing those dual roles 
And then in the OpenStack community, they actually gave me a great opportunities to run their interoperability challenge, which was to demonstrate interoperability for OpenStack. We were going to show the same code running on 15 different vendors live on stage in front of the world. So in front of a keynote crowd of 6,000 plus in Barcelona, ironically here, that's where I was when we did this for the first one, going on stage, we had done all the prep work to make sure that the code was compatible and portable and everybody got out there and everybody ran the workload and it worked and it was stressful. I actually had, I had my, uh, it was a funny story, I had my GM behind me and he was coming on stage with me and he looked at me and he said, Brad, this is going to work, right? And I said, yeah, absolutely, Don, it's going to work, right? So we're backstage behind the uh, keynote thing, very big stage and they're all wearing headsets and you hear somebody say, there's a problem on 11 and I'm, I'm right about to go on stage and I'm like, please don't be IBM, please don't be IBM, please don't be IBM. And I swear to you, I hear on the stage, it's IBM. I'm like, what's going on? And then right after that, they pushed me on stage. And I'm like, I got to go on stage. and I got to go talk about this. And I'm like, oh, this can't be good for Brad's career. So I'm on stage and I'm doing my spiel and talking to the folks there. And then they bring out this long table with all 15 vendors and they're all getting ready to run their software. And uh, one of my colleagues who I've worked with for years was the IBM person running the IBM one. Uh, his name is Tong Lee, just an amazing engineer, amazing, and he was just instrumental in helping us do this interop challenge, working with a lot of the China teams. We had a lot of China teams involved as well, and he spoke Chinese, and we could do that work. But I remember looking up at him because he was kind of higher up than me up on the stage and was like, everything okay? And he looked at me like, everything's fine. What had happened is his machine had gone to sleep, and so they lost the video feed. All that happened is they lost the video feed. But they're back there all screaming, ah, it's not good. something's gone wrong. So, you know, he just wiggles the mouse and it comes, he's just looking at me like, well, what's your problem? Everything's fine. And then anyway, kicked off. Everything was fine. Brad's still employed, but it was a really great opportunity. I did that two times. We did two interrupt challenges, one in Barcelona, one in Boston. And so just being able to give back to the community, mentoring folks in the community, contributing to the community, it's been a great ride. OpenStack was a great ride. And then I switched over to Kubernetes 2016. And it's just been nothing but getting better. There's nothing better as a developer than working in open source, a great open source community where the people are nice, they're helpful. You go out, you, you travel the world, and you see these people a couple times a year, and it's just old friends that you get to keep working with. Wow. Thank you very much, Brad. Brad's going to need to be on stage in less than 30 minutes, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let him leave. But really, thank you for taking time to speak with us today. I really appreciate it. And a great insight into the process of working on open source. Loved it. Thank you. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. As always, we are your hosts, Justin Horsell and the fabulous Luke Chance. Now, please go to developer.ibm.com slash podcasts. You'll be able to check out other podcasts that we've done. Check out other episodes about interesting topics, interesting people we've met and interviewed. Of course, if you've not done so already, please subscribe on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or other platforms. Of course, you can check those out at developer.ibm.com slash podcasts. Luke is at Luke Chance on Twitter. I'm at Juice10. And Brad Topol is at Brad Topol. That's T-O-P-O-L on Twitter. If you want to learn more about Kubernetes, go to kubernetes.io. And of course, we also have a code pattern linked to in the show notes that will allow you to learn more about Kubernetes and get some hands-on experience. See you next time. I hope you enjoyed this.